Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest holds an MFA in creative writing and a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His writing has appeared in Guinerica, The Master's Review, Electric Literature, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and many, many more publications. His debut novel, The Sea Elephants, is out now. Please welcome Shastri Akella. Hey, Shastri, how you doing? I'm good, and thank you so much for featuring me. And it's, it's such an honor to be on the list with so many amazing writers. Uh, yeah, of course. I, I mean, thank you for writing a beautiful book. The Sea Elephants uh, really moved me, and I'm glad we were able to talk. Um, the first question I always ask is, can you just let readers know what The Sea Elephants is from your perspective? I see it as a book ab about a character who goes out into the world uh, seeking love because he's isolated. Not just romantic love, but platonic love as well. The sort that exists between friends, between performers and their audience. Um, and he finds all of that. He finds romantic love too. But ultimately, it's about a book, uh, about th this character falling in love with himself through this journey he takes out in the world. So I think that to me is at the heart of the book. Yeah, definitely. Uh I I loved his journey and um I I think readers will fall in love with it. The book just came out. We're recording this days after your book launch. Um so I can't wait for readers to have discovered it between like us recording it and when it comes out in a few weeks. Um but what part of the book will you be reading for us today? Um, I thought I could read uh, the chapter called First Desire, where uh, Shagun, the main character, meets Mark for the first time because it gives a flavor of the uh, fellow actors he has and it shows the main character meet his boyfriend for the first time. So I, uh, hopefully it won't run too long, but I can also cut it short if it runs too long. Oh, no. read as long as you want, <laughs> of course. Um, I will let you take it away and then I'll be back to ask some questions. Okay, so I'll start. Um, Skull First Desire. The performance began. The R wore the dark night, dark skin of night. The lanterns of her audience, who sat in an open field, flickered in the mountain breeze. The deodor woods behind them flickered with a swarm of fireflies. A gas lamp illuminated the giant egg wooden frame, satin skin, that sat center stage. Six of us sat inside the egg. Nandi's baritone narration began. At first, there was only the egg filled with the unrealized seed of life. The gas lamp was extinguished. We, who were inside the egg, passed the lantern around in time to a drum. Our audience saw a buttery light swish swiftly against a taut, translucent satin. The performance ended. The sun was out. The egg was loaded onto a truck. The stage's cardi white backdrop, unknotted by men on ladders, slipped against a timber backbone and fell to the floor, liquid as waterfall. I walked to the edge of the ground where a few hours ago our audience sat. I heard, as always, snatches of the myth in the voice of my sisters. The egg thought I exist, Matt said. Milk followed, but I exist alone. That was one hell of a show. That line was certainly not in the play. I heard it neither in Matt's voice nor Milk's. I turned around and took note of the speaker. 
a man with ginger hair curled at the tips, his nose a pointed marble ridge, his eyes a shade of blue I couldn't name. It was a dance I'd seen often, men approaching me post-performance, conveying their interest directly, tangentially, or at times quietly, their bodies speaking in their stead. I tried a tactic that often succeeded in thwarting such advances. I crossed my arms and looked behind me, away from him. After a moment, I turned in his direction again, expecting to see him, see his back as he walked away from me. Instead, I saw him standing there, still facing me. He held his hand out and smiled guilelessly. As I shook it, he took a step towards me. He was long-limbed, even his simple movements exuded the practiced elegance of an acrobat. My palm felt sticky when I repaired from the handshake. Got you messy, did I? He said. He extracted from his po- an apple from his pocket. The red, unbitten side faced me. I took it, turned it, and saw the marks his teeth had left on the cream-white flesh. He was eating it a few seconds before he met me, he said. He's, his tongue wasn't navigating a language learned at school with physics and math. He was born into English. What brings you to Chamba? I asked. You're a tourist. He touched his pale cheek. That, mister, is stereotyping. I opened my mouth to protest to mention his accent. Breathe, he said. There you go. You promoted your play at the train station, remember? You obviously did a great job, I'm here. Something about it struck a chord. Weren't you wearing the same thing? We arrived in Chimba the fortnight prior, I told him, and walked, to, and walked through the markets and streets, picking up gestures and lingo particular to the townspeople and then incorporating them in a promotional announcement last week. We wore for that occasion the costumes we would eventually perform in. Something about the combination, familiar manners and words and unfamiliar costumes, it, it captures your attention, I said. The announcement is its own kind of theater. He looked impressed. Well, it isn't my idea, I said. Our theater chief, Nandi, he came up with it. The way you spoke about it, he said, clearly it's a, your work is a thing you love. So what were you doing at the train station that day, I asked. Not buying tickets for my next tourist destination, he said. I smiled. I work for the railways, he said. What's your name? How many men who came up to me with the intention I suspected this man of had asked my name? Shagun Mathur, I said. Mark, he said. Mark Singer. Singer, like Singer sewing machines, I wanted to joke, but my tongue thickened at the thought of joking with him. This is where you say, nice to meet you, he said, switching unexpectedly to an English accent. It was, as I would soon learn, one of his tics. I remembered as I stared at him running with my sisters to the port to see Englishmen. They would have liked Mark, I thought. Mark circled my face with a forefinger. What am I to make of this look? He assumed his American accent again. Six workmen entered the ground, three from either end. They picked up the durries where our audience sat and had sat and whipped and folded them as walls of dust surrounded them, solar tinted. Their action felt like theater, meticulously choreographed. Only Mark felt real, his red air, the red hair, the out scent of him, the unnameable blue of his eyes. I heard the truck honk and turn. Sire stood on the bed of the truck next to the egg. I have to go, I said. Go as and leave town, Mark asked, rubbing his throat. Some of our actors leave tonight. Some of us are staying. He smiled. Staying where? 
School guest house, I said. I know the place, he said. What are you doing on Friday at five, he asked. I'm having some friends over and there's going to be food and music. Want to join us? I can come get you. His invitation gave me the clarity I sought. He struck a conversation because he was interested in me, not in executing a carnal transaction. The thought both exhilarated and rattled me. Listen, I'll show up. If you can make it, great. If not, I'll be on my merry way, he said. I like how you Americans speak, I said. He smiled and stepped closer. His hands, when he spread them out, grazed my arms and I flinched. When he continued to stand there with his arm spread open, I decided to accept his invitation to hug him. But as I took a step towards him, my hands partially raised, my fists clenched, my body language suggesting a restless pause more than a reciprocal gesture of affection. He perhaps noted my initial hesitation, dropped one hand and held the other out, inviting me to a handshake. And just as he noticed my delayed reciprocation of his hug and reverted to spreading his arms like Shah Rukh Khan in DDLJ, I placed one, arm, one hand behind me and held the other out. I broke into a laughter that occupied a vector between embarrassed and awkward. He cupped my hand with both his hands and pulled me gently towards him. And when our bodies touched, he wrapped his arms around me. The hug we finally fell into was one of compromised heights. He bending forward, I standing on my toes so we could each set our chin on the shoulder of the other. I held his apple in one hand and pressed the palm of my free hand to his spine. He shifted his head, his stubble scratched at my neck, his breath exploded on my nape, warm smelling of apple. I closed my eyes, his body's heat swelled against my chest, my thighs. He moved his hand down my back, up my arm, leaving on my skin a trail of himself, finger-shaped bands of heat. The wariness I felt towards him evaporated. I wanted to hold him for as long as I could without coming off as a creep. Anxiety congested my chest. My heart palpitated like it would break and slip and fall into my belly. Then I lost the smells, his breath's fruity zest, the underlying musk of his sweat. Then I lost my sense of touch. My hand no longer sensed the hardness of his back muscles. My body no longer felt his heat. For a moment that had the distinct impression that he, Mark, was no more than a fabrication of my love star mind. My eyes flew open and I stumbled back. His hands fell to his side and there he was, grinning like mischief itself, his hair teased by the wind, his body material as, as mine. He said, you look like you've seen a ghost. I brought his apple to my nose. It smelled milder than it was in the air from his mouth. The truck honked again. He pointed to the apple. Keep it, you're welcome, he said in a voice that felt like a wink. He walked away with a swagger that suggested comfort more than confidence, confidence that had become habit. I hurried towards the roaring truck. Rue hauled me up. I sat down between him and Saya. The truck moved and we exaggeratedly tumbled, tumbled onto each other. We'd been fellow actors for six years, but the game never got old. A few minutes later, they each brought a head to my shoulder and closed their eyes. I licked Mark's teeth teeth marks in the apple and remembered the play, the second scene. Nandi had said, the egg thought I exist, but I exist alone if only there was someone else. Incubated in the heat of this longing, the seeds inside the egg ripened and they spilled out became 
manifest expressions of life. We moved our fingers on the satin surface. Ru ran a penknife along the center and we leaped onto the stage. A human, a serpent, a lion, a fish, a flower. Nandi said, with life came the need to keep an account of creaturely hours, to create where there was a beginning and end. Time was born from the first desire. I'll stop there. Thank you so much for reading. Um, I, I'm. I want to start by asking about like writing and reading in your childhood, and and how involved literature was or wasn't like in your household growing up. Uh, actually, not much reading at all. Um, I started writing and reading fiction when I was when I turned twenty five. Mm. Um, it was not a household because my dad was an engineer, my mom was a homemaker with her hands full with three mm. kids and all her in laws. Um, and I went on to do an undergraduate in computer science. It wasn't my goal to be a writer, uh, but I did grow up in, a, in, a, in the tradition of storytelling. A lot of the myths that I have in this book, my grandmother would read them to me. Um, the Sea Elephant Myth was one of the first stories I distinctly remember her reading to me. Uh, and this idea of this elephant that comes up from the ocean and the gods just take him away. Um, I remember interrupting her and saying, how can the gods just take him away? What happens to his family? Mm -hmm. um, and I accused the gods of being spoiled brats, which didn't go over very well. But um, I think it was more of those storytelling traditions that I was raised on and reading fiction. Once I discovered it, I couldn't stop. So I've been reading fiction avidly ever since I found it. When or and why did you decide to go from computer science to eventually getting your MFA in fiction and a PhD in comparative literature? I I was working for Google in India, and then I sort of ran away from home. I didn't run away; I moved mm -hmm. to a different location in the in this country because my parents were forced, were pressuring me to have an arranged marriage. Which at the time I thought I was asexual. I didn't realize I was gay, but I just knew I didn't want to get married. So I moved to a different location, and this look, the Delhi office is very close to a lot of the treks in the Himalayas. Um, so I would go trekking every week, and I loved that experience. I just something about the size of those mountains made me feel small in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. uh, like my problems felt completely irrelevant. Um, and so when I was trekking, I had this very distinct image which shows up in this book of this young man who's transferring pictures from one wall to the other. Uh, one is the wall of the living and the other is the wall of the dead. Um, and I really wanted to understand his story and know what he's... And he leaves the house. He shifts a picture from the wall of the living to the dead and leaves the house. I wanted to know where he's going and what he does and why he's going out. Uh, so I started to journal his narrative and I realized he's out in the world because he's, he feels isolated and he's seeking platonic love. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how this novel started. And I just, when I started writing it, I was really struggling because I had no experience with writing or even reading actively. Um, so I went to the Jaipur Literary Festival in India and met this um, writer critic who said, well, you should start by reading actively. So I started reading and then eventually applied to the MFA program because with no undergraduate education in the humanities, I thought I would benefit from that. Mm hmm yeah what what were what was your experience like in the mfa um i as someone who wasn't in like the literary world before what was what was that experience like uh, i mean i was a little intimidated at first because all my classmates were so fluent in the workshop language uh this they knew 
they would say, oh, this could be a little more subtle, or this was too on the nose, and they would talk about transitions. And I knew what they were talking about, but I, I would pause them and ask them to explain it to me, which I always felt bad about. And once they explained it, because I'd read literature a lot uh, by then, I knew what they meant. Uh, so it was, for me, a, things which they already knew. I was learning once I joined the MFA program. Uh, but I think the most transformative experience was that I came out in a fiction workshop because I uh, submitted these pages to um, this workshop. And I, I went to the UMass MFA program because I wanted to work with Sabina Marie. I really liked her writing. Um, so when I got into her novel workshop, I was excited. And she read the pages of my manuscript and said, uh, I think this is meant to be a gay love story because Shagun is in love with Mark. Um, and I remember being quite upset with her. <laughs> I went into her office hours and said, what do you mean? It's the, clearly he's, he's the main character is asexual. And so she pointed to the subtext of the story um, and showed spaces where clearly he's in love with Mark. And uh, so I took therapy and came out actually on the last day of her workshop, which was a potluck at her place. Uh, so it's sort of a running joke between Sabina and me that I, I took her workshop and that sent me to therapy. Um, <laughs> But I think that was, I th then I had to I'd rewrite, I started writing the book from scratch, I abandoned everything that I had so far, because I couldn't just go and change a sexuality. I wanted queerness to inform everything in the story from the beginning. Yeah. And, and once you see elephants, kind of there's drafts and it, it started getting polished. Did your family read it like early on or were they involved in reading early drafts or anything like that? No, I mean, uh, when I... Uh, I was sort of like in a very strange way outed to my family oh. because um, a relative found my profile on OkCupid and told everyone. But um, no, they, they did not read the book. I mean, things have come around a lot now. There's a much, there's, if not like a full acceptance, at least they're okay with me being gay as long as I don't bring my personal life to them. Mm. Uh, but my niece is the only one. She's like, she's, she was born and raised here. She goes to U Michigan, very open-minded person. And uh, she's the only one who's read the book. But once the arc came out, she insisted that I send her one. So, um, and she read it and we, we had a long conversation about it, which felt really nice to talk to somebody in my family about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the book is, also, I, I, I'm sure it's going to be published in numerous countries, but I do know it's like Penguin India is publishing it. <clears throat> yeah. How, how does that feel? Like, you know, your native country is publishing this book that maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago couldn't have been published or like wouldn't have been. I know. I mean, I remember when I when I took a draft of this book back in not too long ago in 2016 to an agent based out of Boston, he said, um, well, there is no room for South Asian fiction in the US market. And you might also not want to market this as a queer novel, because that's, that's not what the market is there for. And I think even in the US, things have changed so much yeah. where um, Carolyn Bleak, my uh, editor, she celebrated the queerness of the book and forefront of it in, uh, in the marketing. Um, but then I was still not hopeful that it would find a home in India. So I was so happy. Mansi Subramaniam, who is the editor um, of Penguin India, picked the book up. She was like one of my dream editors because she's acquired some really amazing books which would otherwise not have made their way in India, um, including writing by, uh, you know, partition writing, writing by Muslim writers, which other publishers were ignoring. Um, so I was really happy to work with her. And she also sort of celebrated the book for its core essence. Um, the timing for me feels uh, 
it, it's so interesting because it's the, the same sex marriage debate is going on in India right now. And the the result will be out this month. So the, the, the book came out in India this Monday. Um, so it's just something about the timing. I'm happy that alignment has happened. But yeah. the team in Penguin India has been really supportive. Uh, you're right. Ten years back, there's no way this book would have found a home in India. And I, I am still a little worried about the public reception because I do... I celebrate the Hindu myths, but I also critique contemporary um, takes that Hinduism has or Hindus have on, on homosexuality. So I'm bracing myself for um, criticism from that end. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I mean, obviously I am not Indian and, 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 or Hindu, but uh, coming from a, like, you know, a, my background, I think the book is just monumental in so many ways. And I'm so glad it came across my desk and I thank you for writing it. Um, yeah, just thank you for writing it. Uh, I'll end with just asking about books you love, uh, books that got you into reading in your 20s that you were talking about, books that inspire you now. Just that You can list as many or as little as you want, but I'd love to get recommendations from you. Yeah, I mean, the first book that I truly fell in love with uh, is God of Small Things by Arunhati Roy. And I was just so blown away that she captured the perspective of children. These It's because it's told from the point of view of these twins who are, I think, 10 or 11. Um, and I was so, it was such a beautiful telling because it brings in the innocence of these children looking at a world that's very corrupted by, you know, the caste system uh, and violence. Uh, but it's so playful because it's a child's perspective. I've read that book. This is such a nerdy thing to share, but I've read that book every single year for the last 15 years mm-hmm. uh, for my birthday. So I finished reading it on my birthday and then celebrate my birthday with those characters. So that's very dear to my heart. Uh, of the contemporary writers, I love Douglas Stewart, both Shaggy Bain and Young Mungo are, were fascinating. Uh, Shaggy Bain came out during the pandemic, so he did a lot of his Zooms on, on a, a lot of his events on Zoom. And I attended like six or seven of his events because I was just so blown away by his novel. So that's um, that's another writer, contemporary writer whose work I love. Uh, Michael Chabon, too, is, I think, pretty powerful, especially uh, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a book, again, I've read it at least four times at this point because it was very instructive in the way it the way I bring in myth into the book, he brings in comics into his novel. Um, so that I really was appreciative of. Um, I also like the writing of Garth Greenwell, uh, Brandon Taylor, and um, yeah, Michael uh, Michael Cunningham's another writer who I love. So yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Shastri Akela, for joining the Day Beautiful podcast first taste reading series to read from his debut novel, The Sea Elephants. You could follow him on the internet on Instagram and Twitter at Shastri AV. That's Shastri AV. And you can follow Day Beautiful at Day Beautiful on all social media and find us on DayBeautiful.net. And as always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>